Uh, before we start, I just want to uh, take a moment. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 5, that's where we're going to be. But I just want to pray this morning uh, before we dive in. We're starting a new series, and I just want to pray and ask God to be with us as we enter into the Word of God together, that he might move among us and that his words would be my words uh, for us today. So if you would, let's, let's just take a moment, pause, and pray together. Father God, we thank you for today, for the privilege it is to gather together, to declare with our lungs that you are worthy. Jesus, you are worthy. We declare that in this place because of even the testimonies we just heard of how you are constantly and continually bringing people into life change. As I got to witness with my own eyes and hear with my own ears this week of all over the globe how you're radically changing the world and bringing people into a relationship with you. You are worthy, God. We would be lost without you. Every person sitting here, no matter if they've done what we just saw and heard of placing their faith in you, every person that's online, whether they've place their faith and trust, you are, you are still worthy of our voice. And so God, I ask that in this moment that you would help us as we enter into a new series before Easter, that you would help us to catch your vision for what you want to see happen through the world, that we might catch how your heart, how it functions and how we might be able to live in light of that, that we might follow in your footsteps, Jesus. So I ask that you would speak today. May no word of mine be a hindrance, and let your word, your holy word of God speak before the people today, as you, Jesus, are our example in all that we do. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 uh, this morning. Uh, I just got back on Friday from East Africa. I was in Tanzania. Um, there connecting with one of our missionary partners uh, actually in, in India that is planting thousands of churches and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. If I could bring back one thing for you is to not get your mind so myopically focused on what God may not be doing in your neighborhood and know that the gospel and the church is spreading like wildfire all over the world. Millions of followers coming to know Jesus. And churches being planted. Pretty fascinating, amazing. Um, I, I was there because we weren't able to go to India. One of our missionary partners is Biju Kumar with TTI, Timothy Initiative, as they are planting churches and making disciples throughout northern India in a very hard place to make disciples. Much persecution threatens, all the thre uh, being threatened, all these different things. And unfortunately, we weren't able to get into India because of COVID stuff. So we went to Tanzania and Biju met us there. And we were there with the East African team and many other churches from Metro Detroit and all over the country to see with their own eyes what God is doing through our partnership with them. And I was honestly blown away by what God is doing in miraculous form. And it was amazing as we were there with probably 25 people and we were just traveling from church to church to church, seeing what God was doing, hearing testimony of what God was doing. Even got to see a baptism in a lake where there was crocodiles and a whole herd of 
of uh, animals or, or cows came to drink water and were literally bathing in the water that they were getting baptized in. With no care in the world, they went down into the water and declared their faith in Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing. And over the last week and a half, week or so, all of these people that came together, I only knew two people on the trip, and by the end, I felt very close with 20-some people that I hope to stay in contact over the, the rest of my life and what God is doing in East Africa. What was amazing is we didn't know any, no one really knew each other that well, but every, it felt like we were constantly eating. You ever been like that? Like, I felt like we were always having a meal together. But what was amazing is that from the beginning of our trip where we didn't know anybody, to the end of the trip, we felt like we knew everybody, and I was close with them, and I heard their testimony. I had heard what God had done in their life, and hearing Biju in Delhi, and how he radically came to know Jesus, that God meeting his sister in a dream as they were Hindu and brought them into faith. It was amazing and profound, but all of it was shared around a meal. And I was reminded, even as what we're about to talk to you today, is that meals, there's something significant and special that happens around a table. You know that? There's something amazing and significant that happens around a meal. When you think about it, we'll go into this a little bit further throughout our series, but if you think about it, what was the last thing Jesus was doing with his disciples before he was crucified? Having a meal. What is the first thing that it says we're going to do in heaven? What is it called? The marriage what? Feast of the Lamb. There's something significant about meals together. Hospitality. Sharing with one another. That's why we called our series Soul Food. Soul Food. When a meal with Jesus was more than food. When a meal with Jesus was more than food, and we're going to look at a number of meals that Jesus had leading up to Easter and how they don't impact our own mission, the way we function, the way we do life, and how we practice all that we do. And you might be sitting there being like, thinking like, meals are kind of a weird thing to focus on, don't you think, Jim? Can't we focus on the message of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus? Like, why meals? Before you write it off... Um, We've probably already heard, and we've been asking our um, groups to go through a book by Tim Chester, Meals with Jesus. And in the book, in the, in the book, excuse me, three, he, he, he tells us that three times in scriptures we read that the Son of Man came to do something. You probably remember some of them, you've been around Christianity very long, you'll probably remember that the first thing is in Mark chapter 10 where it says, the Son of Man came to not, came not to be served, but to serve and what? Give his life as a what? A ransom for many. Says, that's one of the things Jesus says that he comes to do. Second, in Luke 19, it says that he came to seek and to save who? The lost. You know what the third thing is? You can find it in Luke chapter 7. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Don't you love that? I do, because I love eating and drinking. It's amazing when you look at it. The first two statements are kind of the purpose with which Jesus came. He came to serve, and he came to give his life, and to seek, and to save the lost. But the third statement, the third statement that he came eating and drinking is kind of the method with which he came. It's how he came. That he came eating and drinking. I'll never forget, I remember someone who was, who was walking with us in a discipleship process for Woodside. He said, Jesus came bringing the kingdom, but he came eating and drinking. 
that there's something significant in the mission of God and the mission of Jesus coming that was around a table. That Jesus understood something that we need to grasp. That despite the, the, the difficulties of people's diets nowadays and the inconveniences of cooking, there is something powerful that happens over a shared meal. Something amazing and powerful that happens over a shared meal. And when you look at it, Jesus ate all throughout the New Testament and something was significant to him. It meant something to his audience. He understood the power of a shared meal. Later on in the book, Chester, in the book that we've been saying for you to read, whether you're in a group or not, he says in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. Think about that for a moment. Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. And we're going to get into one of those stories today. And it may be absurd. You might think about it like that. That's kind of an absurd statement. But there was something different about the way in which shared meal meant to them in the ancient Near East. For them, it, it, it communicated something. Like sharing a table with someone, eating with someone, it, it meant, it, it communicated this acceptance of one another that Jesus was kind of placing himself in. It meant to symbolize kind of this shared intimacy or kinship or unity together. And that's why we see oftentimes that the Pharisees are not very happy that Jesus is sharing a meal with sinners, as we'll even see today. There's this amazing Turkish proverb that some, says something like this, you can't trust a man until you've eaten a pound of salt with him. Sounds funny, doesn't it? But what, what he's getting at is that fellowship around a table involves intimacy and trust and friendship, and it happens gradually. Just like you can't eat a pound of salt in one sitting, what he's getting at is you can't trust a man until you've eaten a pound of salt with him. It's something that happens over a gradual time that takes time to get to that place where you share a meal with someone and invite them into your life and you share, just like I experienced for the last week in Africa. It takes time. And we want to look at that, the importance of the table. As we understand the importance of this question, I want us to wrestle with this, is that with whom did Jesus eat? Think about that for a moment. With whom did Jesus eat? And share meals with when you look at the New Testament. And then secondly, with whom does that mean that you should eat with? Or want to eat with? Or share meals with? We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke today and find a handful of answers all surrounding this idea that following Jesus means feasting with sinners. Following Jesus means feasting with sinners. And at first glance, you might be like, whoa, wait a minute. I want to show you today. And then we'll show you throughout the rest of the series that this is true. As Jesus, his first dinner guest, is amazing. In Luke chapter 5, he sets this new tone for his ministry. As he goes forward, looking at his dinner guests and who he has with him, the first thing we see is that Jesus invites sinners. He finds them and he invites sinners into his life as he shares a meal with them. Look with me in verse 27, chapter 5, together. This is what we read. After this... He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, that is Levi, he rose and followed him. So, so our passage today starts with this beautiful and simple story of redemption, the redemption of Levi, the tax collector. And it starts with kind of the background of Levi. I mean, you may not get it at first glance, but he says his name Levi literally means he was probably born into a priestly family, family named the Levites, that there was a tribal 
origin for them as a Levite, that they were born and chosen uniquely by God to be the people who served in the temple, that they would have been a priestly family. This tribe is the one that God chose to do the worship. Much I would have been called a Levite, like what I'm doing. But evidently, Levi, however, chose to go in another direction and not go with his family's profession, and he became a tax collector. Now, I'm sure you've heard a million times, you've been around church, tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. Now, it's a little more in-depth even than that. You know, Israel at this time is, is occupied by the Roman government, and taxes were, were, were kind of farmed out to, to local Jewish people to, to get from their own people. But what was worse is this. Levi is is a Jew. He's an Israelite. So he is now collecting taxes, even extorting taxes on behalf of the Roman government to pay the salaries of Roman soldiers so that they could further in, like, impoverish and occupy Israel. So think about that for a moment. His own people probably didn't think too highly of him, not because he was collecting taxes for them for the Roman government, but it was to pay the salaries of the Roman soldiers to keep them in oppression. So I don't know about you, but that guy's probably not liked too much. He was thought of like a collaborator with Rome, an extortionist, and he was thought of horribly. But Jesus invites this guy to be one of his followers, and you've got to imagine, we don't think about this often, think about the different people that are sitting at the feet of Jesus, all of the different disciples. He was probably even hated among the disciples. So we know of at least one, maybe two of the disciples that were zealots. You know what a zealot is? I'll talk about this in a few moments. But a zealot was a, a sect of Judaism that thought the way in which we were going to bring about the kingdom of God was to overthrow the government. So they were radicals. They had swords. They were ready to overthrow the Roman government by force. And here's this guy, Levi, who's empowered by the Roman government to keep them in oppression, sitting next to them at the feet of Jesus. They probably didn't go five minutes without fighting with getting at, literally at each other's throats. And then imagine also we have James and John who are fishermen. And it was known that daily as they caught their catch, there was a tax of what they caught that was even not even good that they would have to give back so that, it, that, that even in their daily catch. So they probably knew Levi on a, on a, on a normal basis. They knew who he was. And he had, they had probably had to pay their tax to Levi many different times. And he was often collecting more than he should have so that he could get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And here he is now. He's being called in to this inner crew with Jesus to sit next to the guys that he's been extorting and taking money with from. Imagine just for a moment. We think in the church we have trouble getting along. Imagine what their problems would have been. But I love is Jesus how our views Levi differently. They probably saw him as a troublemaker, an outcast, never to be called into the kingdom of God. But think about the way that Jesus saw him. Luke describes Jesus as observing him at his booth. This word would imply more than just like he walked by, saw Levi, and was like, hey, Levi, come and follow me. And he's like, oh, yes, I would love that. Just follows Jesus. But more of an observing. We don't know how long, but Jesus was watching, seeing there's something different about this man. Maybe watching and seeing that he was tired of being rejected. He was tired of questioning the life that he had chosen. And he was wrestling with, tired of being a traitor. And Jesus gives him an opportunity in all of that to come in, be a part of his team, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he asks a simple request, come and follow me. And Levi leaves everything and follows him. Now, 
There's a lot more to this, as I personally believe, that Jesus would have been a teacher, a rabbi, and it was a big deal for a young Jewish boy who didn't make it through the rabbinical system as he wasn't smart enough. All Jewish boys would have gone through the rabbinical system, would have gone through all of this process, and only the best of the best would become a teacher or a rabbi. So to train under a rabbi was a really big deal, and so Levi probably didn't make it through to the greatest, and now here a rabbi is legitimately. Because sometimes you look at it, you're, like, you're just walking on the beach, and Jesus maybe is glowing and floating, ah, and he just sees them, and he's like, yeah, come and follow me. And they're like, we would love to do that. Like, why? Like, why did they throw their nets and give up their business and all this different stuff? It's because Jesus was a real teacher, a real rabbi. And for a rabbi to ask a young Jewish boy that didn't make it through the system was an unbelievable deal. And Levi hears the call, leaves everything. Probably the most wealthy of all the apostles. And in following Jesus, you know, the fishermen, James and John, they could have left everything, and if things didn't go well, they go back to fishing, which actually happened after Jesus was crucified. Levi cost him a lot. In leaving, there's no other way the Roman government's going to take him back and put him back at his post as he leaves and follows this radical Jesus. Huge deal for him to leave and follow Jesus. But Jesus finding these, these sinners amongst the people and calling them to follow. It, it honestly reminds me, as this last week, I went from village to village throughout all kinds of different areas of Tanzania and saw how, how these men and women are radically pushing forward the kingdom of God and churches are being planted daily and new converts are coming to, to Christ daily because they're going out into the community and inviting sinners into their lives. Inviting sinners into their homes with a mission in their mind to make disciples as Jesus did. That Jesus saw Levi quite differently than the rest of everyone. And you see, that's the amazing thing is that if you're here today or you're watching online, maybe you've gone through life and you feel a certain way, like God has to see me this way. Can I tell you, God doesn't see you and God is not defining you by your failures, your past, or your brokenness. He's not. Like Levi, he's not judging you, looking at you. He's looking at you with eyes of love, and we'll get to it. He's not okay with the sinfulness of the people he calls to follow him. But he looks at them with fresh eyes to say, man, I see someone that needs redemption. I see someone that is, that is in need of, of newness of life. I see someone that's probably tired of being a failure, tired of being hated, tired of being rejected, tired of being a traitor. I can tell you, there's people amongst you right now in this place that feel tired of their brokenness, tired of sinning, tired of, of not being able to live up to what God has called them to, tired of what they're living in. And if you're here today or watch online, can I tell you, God sees you and he invites you in. He doesn't condemn you. He condemns your sin and what you're living in, but he invites you in. He sees a son or a daughter of God wanting to invite you into the process. He saw more than a tax collector, than a trader. He saw Levi for who he was, that Jesus came that we might be able to find a new way back to God, and he whispers the same words he did to them as he does to us, follow me. And I just want to press on us here for a moment, believers in Jesus Christ, do you see the way Jesus sees? The people that live next door to you, the people you work with, 
the people you see in coffee shops you visit? Do you see like Jesus does, see people that are probably tired of pursuing after everything under the sun for satisfaction and can't find it? Tired of their brokenness, tired of being tired, tired of being rejected, tired of trying to live up to make God happy one day so when they stand before God, God will love them more than hate them. They're tired. Do you see people like that? Or do we see people like the Pharisees in a moment, we'll see that those people are to be rejected and we need to build walls of more Christianity so we don't have to be involved with them. We have to find neighborhoods where all the Christians live so I don't have to deal with the outside world. And what does your table represent? And I'm saying this as much to you as I am to me because I have to wrestle with this before I preach it. Is Does my table represent like Jesus' table that involves Levi's, broken sinners that would have been looked at as outcasts in the community that they lived in. Think about the outcasts maybe you know of. Are those people invited to your table? Because Jesus invited sinners. Not only did he invite them, he entered into his world. Now this is significant. He entered into Levi's world as he feasts with sinners. He feasted with Levi. Look in verse 29. It says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. Love that. And there was a large company of who? Tax collectors. Extortionists. Sinners. Sellouts. Broken people. And others reclining at the table with them. That, that, that Jesus feasts with sinners. It don't matter how you cut it. This is Jesus. We have to remember at this point the significance of what it meant to share a meal with people in Jesus' day, which I already talked about, and then the significance, as I just talked about, the view of tax collectors and how crazy this would have been. And put in your own mind who those people would be in your community or in the world we live in today who would have been sitting at your table or you're in their home eating at their dinner table, and this church people looks on and be like, I can't believe Jim Dalkey's eating with those people. Just think about this. You see, holiness in Jesus' time was viewed as something delicate. According to the, the Pharisees, as we'll talk about in a minute, it was, it was very delicate, something easily destroyed if you didn't carefully watch the way you handled it to them. But to Jesus, it was something different. Holiness to them was so delicate that, like, man, if you lost it, you would be unholy. But Jesus had something totally different. We get a kind of clue to that in Luke chapter 5. We don't have time to read it. But when Jesus was confronted with a man that said that he was covered, he was full of leprosy, someone that would have been totally unclean. And if you would have touched them or got near them, you would have been ceremonially unclean. Therefore, you wouldn't be able to worship in the temple. You wouldn't have been able to go to worship or be around people because you would have been considered unclean. And I love when you get into the story... Everybody thought this person would have been a risk, like don't go near them, don't go touch them. But Jesus instead rewrites his understanding of holiness and compassion with a move of his hand. As he reaches out, stretches out, and he touched him, which would have been radical. And he says, I will be clean. And immediately the man left him as a clean guy. No more leprosy anymore. You see, to Jesus... Holiness is not some delicate thing. It's not something we need to, to protect. You see, instead, Jesus' kind of holiness is not tainted by sin. It consumed sin. 
Jesus' holiness is not something that when I get around people that are sinful, I will naturally become sinful. No, Jesus has a view of holiness that when I, as a follower of Jesus, come around someone who is unclean, by the grace of God, they might become clean. Rather than the view I've had much of my life in following Jesus that I've heard proposed before in pulpits, that if I'm too much around non-believers, I'll become unclean. Rather, the view of Jesus is that when you come in the room to unclean people, they will become clean. It's a radical difference of mind. And we for too long have this view that if I get around unclean people, I will become unclean. That I will that will somehow radically be this person that I shouldn't be. And I'm not saying we're not careful. I'm not saying we don't have a community of people that are holding us accountable, walking with us. But we need to change our view of cleanness. That we are righteous before God. And we go into a place, and when light comes into darkness, what happens? Light comes. And this is the view of Jesus' view of holiness. But he didn't come as a prophet showering hellfire and brimstone from a pulpit. How do you find Jesus? I love this. You find Jesus reclining at a table with them, a pound of salt. It takes time, it takes investment, it takes openness. Jesus is at home at a party and his presence escapes our simple categories. He's feasting with the unclean and celebrating Levi's repentance. It's amazing. And we can misunderstand this and there's people in this room that can take this as an excuse to lay aside our own pursuit of holiness. Yeah, I'm going, I'm just going to parties. I'm just partying with people. Got drunk last week, and I'm just trying to be all things to all men, like Paul tells me. Well, that's not what we're talking about. No, Jesus is celebrating repentance here with Levi, going into his place. I remember a number of years ago, as a pastor, you don't get to rub shoulders with non-believers very much, unless you're a- actively trying. Nowadays, I feel like I hang out with non-believers a lot, with my kids' soccer teams and things like that, but at that time in life, my kids were young, and much of what I did was just inside the four walls of the churches. And I'll never forget, when I lived in, in Shelby Township, I, I liked to bow hunt, and so there was a, a bow shop just up the road, and I didn't know anybody there. And my wife, um, I told Sarah that, I was, hey, I'm going to start shooting in this bow league just because I feel like I need to be around non-believers. I need to be around people that, that, that swear, and I need to be around people that don't love Jesus, and they're into wrong things. And I'm not saying that lightheartedly. I'm saying because I just feel like, you know, the, that we need to be around people so people know Jesus. And I was, and I was, so I joined this league, and it took a while. They didn't know I was a pastor, and I just kind of hung with them and got to know people and entered into their world. And I'll never forget when they asked me, like, what do you do for a living? And I, I was like, oh, here we go. This is always the turning point. <laughs> and I said, I'll give you five guesses. And they didn't guess. And when I told them the pastor, they, they literally swore in their response. And I, and I said, I love that. Like, just that, that I could be a part of their lives. I still have a relationship with so many people there. When I come into the bow shop, they say, hey, Pastor Jim. And I've had some great spiritual conversations out of that. But it took me a, a point of saying, I need to make sure that I am surrounding myself, inviting people in, yes, 
but going into their world of those who are lost so that we might be able to bring light into the darkness. Here's the thing. If you're going to feast with sinners, it presupposes that you know sinners. Not just like no, like I work with a guy, yeah, or uh, my neighbors, I like them until they blow their leaves on my yard, or the dog barks too much, or whatever, but, but do you know them? Like when's the last time you invited your neighbors over for dinner? With not just the intention of having them over for dinner, but for mission. And I'm saying this to myself because I just moved into my neighborhood. It's been winter, and now the light has come, and thank God it's been warm. Praise Jesus. We could just sing a worship song for that for a moment. But just me, only, me and myself thinking, like, okay, what does it look like now for me? I moved into the neighborhood. God strategically took a year. God fasted and prayed for a year before he put me into this neighborhood because I was living in my brother's basement. And now I'm there, so what is, God, what is God calling me to do there? But not just to have them over, but strategically praying, God, how can I be your hands and your feet? How can I move amongst your people? How can I eat with them? Not just to be nice, but with a mindset of like, God, what do you want me to say? And I feel like many times we are held back by, well, if I invite my neighbors over and they find out I'm a Christian, they're going to think I'm a Looney Tune. Great. That's awesome. Looney Tunes are fun. Just like show them the real side of Christianity that we're not lunatics, we're not Looney Tunes. We're real people that love Jesus and we serve people and we love people well so that you're so part of their life when, when, when their family member dies, you're there to love on them. When they're struggling to pay their bills, they're the, you're there to help them pay their bills. So, because it takes time, a pound of salt over time to get into people's lives. But what does your table look like in your home? And you might feel super overwhelmed to be like, yeah, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have all of the words to say, and I don't have a Bible degree uh, to be able to share with them and refute the things. I say, can I tell you? You have the Spirit of God, which is the best Bible degree you could ever have. And, and, and he will walk with you. Can I tell you? Dependency on God is the currency of the kingdom of God. If you think one day you're going to be like, I've got all the answers. Now I'm ready to go on a mission. Can I tell you? You'll never come to that place. In Africa, I'm watching young converts who knew nothing about God. And in two years of training, they're ready to be a pastor. But in that two years, they've already made 30 disciples. Just walking with the Lord. Asking the Spirit of God to use them. Dependency is the currency of the kingdom. And God will never put you in a place where you're not able or have to be dependent on him. So if you feel overwhelmed by going, inviting people into your home, can I tell you, that's the will of God for you. Because it places you in a position of dependency. But we're really good in the American church of only stepping out when everything is calculated, we know every answer, we have it all figured out. That is not where God is. God is majority, most of the time, in the places where we feel overwhelmed and in need of him. God's calling us to follow in his footsteps. In the last couple of verses, it's profound. As you look at Jesus fulfilling his mission around the table, look what it says in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the, his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
man, you might invite people into your home, and there might be some people you know, like, man, I can't believe you had that person in your home. Do you know what they do? You let those people around your children? And Jesus answered them, just think about this, let this sink into our hearts and minds. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That is the heart of God. That he came as a physician to call broken people into repentance. Not those who think they already have that thing, but those who are in great need of him. They ask, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? I love that. There's a little background that helps us understand this. The Pharisees were convinced that they were fighting for ethnic purity as well as religious truth. So they believed that salvation by segregation versus salvation by association. Do you understand what I mean by that? Salvation by segregation. Like, you can't be around those people. They're unclean. It's what we talked about before. Rather than salvation by association with Jesus Christ. So they thought that, man... I mean, there are sinful people in the kingdom of, of Israel, and they, they've brought catastrophic problems on our nation, and they need to repent or be purged in order to bring about the kingdom. There was four major groups within Israel that, at that time, sects, if you would. So there was uh, the Zealots, which you talked about. They thought the kingdom of God would become by overthrowing their overgovernment, by, by force, right? Then there's the Sadducees. You hear about them in the Bible? They're very sad, you see, because... They didn't believe in the resurrection. They only believed in the first four books of the Bible, and they didn't believe in an actual spirit world, and they didn't believe that there would be a resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Like, this is it. Then there was the Essenes. They're probably famous, more famous lately than you would know about because if you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not too long ago, finding the Dead Sea Scrolls as some shepherds threw some rocks up in in a cave, I've been to the place, then they heard like pottery break, and they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is an amazing find of scripture, probably there because of the Essenes, who are separatists, that they would just go to a place and separate, kind of like monks, and they would just translate the Bible, and they thought the kingdom of God was coming that way. Then you have the Pharisees. We hear more about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people that thought we were going to bring about the kingdom of God by holiness, by purity, so they made laws upon the laws upon the laws to make sure you didn't break the law. And here we see, like, man, this is, this is a problem. You are, you are with sinners. You're going to become unclean. We need to purge this from among you. The issue Jesus draws down is this. The issue at hand is the comparative perception of holiness. They believe themselves to be holy. So listen to this. The invitation to repentance was unappealing to the Pharisees. When you think that you're holy... Why do you need repentance? The good news of a doctor only comes to those who are ill. Right? The understanding that, that, that the goodness of God comes to, turn in our, comes to term in our own condition is this, that Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't hide his opinions of the people at the table. He literally spoke as they're all around him. Remember what he says? He says, Jesus calls sinners to repentance. So he's like, hey, look at all these sinners. Imagine being at the table. Like, what the? So Jesus wasn't like sidestepping sinful behavior but he's saying, hey, no, I came to bring sinners 
into repentance. Not, not those who think they're holy and literally condemning the Pharisees. And I'm like a doctor. I'm coming to bring good news to those who are sick. It'd be like you going to the doctor uh, this week and you get t- terrible news, whatever it might be. And the doc says, hey, at the end of the day, I have good news, though. You're sick. Take this medication. You'll be fine. You have two choices. You can walk out thinking, I don't believe the doctor. I'm just leaving, and I'll be just fine, and your, your, your fate is already probably sealed. Or you can take the good news of the doctor that you are really sick, and I have the answer, and if you take this, you will be made whole. But it's perspective. If you convince yourself and think that you are not sick, there's no need for anything to make you better. This is the problem of the Pharisees. But the tax collectors with Jesus, at least one of them, knew that he was pretty broken. He was in need of a savior. He was an outcast. He was maybe unloved. And Jesus here now is meeting him in that place, approaching like a doctor, coming into the exam room and saying, you're ill, but I have the answer. And he's there celebrating their repentance as he feasts with them under repentance. I love that. Can you imagine just for a moment how the Pharisees felt as Jesus would have eaten with them? Imagine how they've been treated most of their lives. Because of their own brokenness, because of their own choices, but imagine what they were treated like. And then this guy who's like a rabbi, a teacher, is sitting with them, eating with them. Can I tell you, there's a lot of views of Christianity in the world today. A lot of them not very good. Probably most of them judgmental. Can I tell you what it would probably feel like for someone who is lost into some pretty messed up stuff? What would it be like for you to eat at their table or to invite them into your table, imagine what they would feel. Like those guys that I interacted with at a bow shop. You're a pastor? Man, we like swear and stuff. Why would you hang around with me? But imagine if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, inviting people into our table and meeting people at their table what maybe God would give us the grace, just the opening to do significant things in their lives for the kingdom of God. And that's part of the reason why we as a church have been, are inviting you as we enter into the Easter season to do just that, to invest in people's lives that you might be able to invite them to Easter. That's why our series is called Soul Food And we're inviting life groups to to study through a meal with Jesus together to see how God might move in their own hearts and lives to learn about the model of ministry that Jesus perpetuates in the scriptures in the hopes that we might actually learn and walk in it. Specifically, we're encouraging you. You'll see like this this card that says prepare, invest, invite, multiply. That, that like we want you to prepare as we enter into to the season of Easter. And as you, you go in, prepare yourselves in your heart. 
Like, yes, we don't want you to miss it. Don't come to Easter on Sunday morning and be like, that's going to be awesome. We're going to scream. And one time a year I lift my hands during worship. It's going to be awesome. But no, prepare your heart in getting there. But also we, we're, we're inviting you, we're calling you to invest in someone's life. What does it look like for you over the next month to invest in someone that doesn't know Jesus? And that means invest. It might mean, hey, would you want to come over for dinner or, or bring them a meal or just invest into their lives over the next course of the month and pray and ask God to move in their hearts and life. And then maybe you'll have the opportunity to invite them. Say, man, would you come to Easter on Sunday morning? I'd love for you to come and celebrate with my family. But oftentimes what happens is we do the opposite. We just randomly invite people, but we've never made an investment. Remember, the pound of salt. What does it look like for you over the next month or so to invest in people's lives and then potentially invite them? You don't have to put forth a, an evangelism program. You don't have to trick them into watching the gospel presentation. Please don't do that. I'll have them over for dinner and halfway through the meal, I'm like, so, uh, we wanted to show you this uh, video. It's the Jesus film. Click, like, yeah, just, dessert will be coming soon. Don't worry about it. They'll think that you're like a Christian network marketing scheme, and you're like just pulling you in, like, what do we get into, right? Like, don't do that. Invest into their lives. Pray and ask the Spirit of God to move. And watch him move as you invest into people's lives and invite them maybe to church maybe you know maybe it's not you, you know they never come to church like you know what the amazing thing is i don't have to lead them, lead them to the lord i'm not a professional christian you don't pay me to be a professional christian you pay alex to do that <laughs> no you don't pay us to be professional christians you know what my job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry that would mean your job is to lead them to Christ. Our job is to equip you to do so. And the Spirit of God is there to empower you to do so. May it be so. May God lead us in that way of great opportunity with Jesus, having the good news of Christ. And let's have a party in the name of Jesus over the next month that sinners might meet at our table. We might have, to have an opportunity to invite them into the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for today and the opportunity we have to read of Jesus, you, and all that you did. Um, we thank you, God, for the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stories of the gospel that we can catch the heart of you, Jesus, which means we catch the heart of God. And God, we know that there's something significant that happens around a table, and God, even in our culture, more and more, we're losing that as we're constantly running through fast food lines to eat and rushing from place to place and not sitting and sitting with people and hearing from them and hearing their story. And God, so many people in this room or watching online are so busy, myself included, oftentimes running from one thing to the next. We don't have the opportunity to invest. And God, we ask for that. Would you give us a heart that is Jesus' heart? that we might be able to move forward over the next month or more going forward to see how you might open the hearts of people around us. Right now, in the name of Jesus, God, I ask every person in this room, those watching online that would call themselves a follower of Jesus, right now in the name of Jesus, would you put on their minds and their hearts 
people they know, maybe a neighbor, co-worker, that you've given them peace with, that for some reason they already maybe know they're a Christian and they like them. And you'd, you'd, you'd press into them to invest into their lives and have a meal with them. Even as we're about to sing, Lord, I, I pray it wouldn't just be a word that comes off our lips to a catchy tune. As we sing, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere, but then choose certain areas we don't want to follow. So in this area, Lord, as we sing, we declare we'll follow you anywhere. And in that place, it might mean we have to be dependent upon you, Lord, but that is the currency of your kingdom, dependence on you. And so push us into those places, God, so we might follow you. God, our heart is to follow you anywhere. And anywhere might just be next door to our neighbor. Moving, moving our hearts and our minds in this time, Lord. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.